I've been sick for like a week. I haven't been sick, but like the weather turned suddenly like a week and a half ago and and uh, it just wrecked my sinuses and that had just an unfortunate effect on me. And that's why my wife recorded last week's episode and I didn't want to ask her to record this week's episode too because then it would be her podcast and you just never hear from me again. So, hi. This is the voice you get to deal with this week. I'm sorry. Uh, thank you all for listening as you do. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you sticking with me through the all the turmoil this week. It has been an absolutely lunatic week for me. Um, things have been changing last minute. I've had a bunch of stuff come up that I've needed to take care of. And it is Monday afternoon at 1.35 that I am recording this. And this is going to go, this is going to, this is going to get dropped to you in about nine hours. And I'm sick. You're welcome. Many and multiform are the dim horrors of earth, infesting her ways from the prime. They sleep beneath the unturned stone. They rise with the tree from its roots. They move beneath the sea and in subterranean places. They dwell in the inmost adita. They emerge betimes from the shut and sepulchre of haughty bronze and the low grave that is sealed with clay. There be some that are long known to man, and others as yet unknown that abide their terrible latter days of their revealing. Those which are the most dreadful and the loathliest of all are happily still to be declared. But among those that have revealed themselves aforetime and have made manifest their veritable presence, there is one which may not openly be named for its exceeding foulness. It is that spawn which the hidden dweller in the vaults has begotten upon mortality. From the Necronomicon of Abdul Alhazred The Nameless Offspring by Clark Ashton Smith In a sense, it is fortunate that the story I must now relate should be so largely a thing of undetermined shadows, of half-shaped hints and forbidden inferences. Otherwise, it could never be written by human hand or read by human eye. My own slight part in the hideous drama was limited to its last act, and to me its earlier scenes were merely a remote and ghastly legend. Yet even so, the broken reflex of its unnatural horrors has crowded out in perspective the main events of normal life, has made them seem no more than frail gossamers woven on the dark, windy verge of some unsealed abyss, some deep, half-open charnel wherein earth's nethermost corruptions lurk and fester. The legend of which I speak was familiar to me from childhood as a theme of family whispers and head-shakings, for Sir John Tremoth had been a schoolmate of my father. But I had never met Sir John, had never visited Tremoth Hall till the time of those happenings which formed the final tragedy. My father had taken me from England to Canada when I was a small infant, he had prospered in Manitoba as an apiarist, and after his death, the Bee Ranch had kept me too busy for years to execute a long-cherished dream of visiting my natal lands and exploring its rural byways. When finally I set sail, the story was pretty dim in my memory, and Tremoth Hall was no conscious part of my itinerary when I began a motorcycle tour of the English counties. In any case, I should never have been drawn to the neighborhood out of morbid curiosity, such as the frightful tale might possibly have evoked in others. My visit, as it happened, was purely accidental. I had forgotten the exact location of the place and did not even dream that I was in its vicinity. If I had known, it seems to me that I should have turned aside in spite of the circumstances that impelled me to seek shelter rather than intrude upon the almost demoniacal misery of its owner. When I came to Tremoth Hall, 
I had ridden all day in early autumn through a rolling countryside with leisurely winding thoroughfares and lanes. The day had been fair, with skies of pale azure above noble parks that were tinged with the first amber and crimson of the following year. But toward the middle of the afternoon, a mist had come in from the hidden ocean across low hills and had closed me about with its moving phantom circle. Somehow, in that deceptive fog, I managed to lose my way, to miss the mileposts that would have given me my direction to the town where I had planned to spend the ensuing night. I went on for a while at random, thinking that I should soon reach another crossroad. The way that I followed was little more than a rough lane and was singularly deserted. The fog had darkened and drawn closer, obliterating all horizons, but from what I could see of it, the country was one of heath and boulders with no sign of cultivation. I topped a level ridge and went down a long, monotonous slope as the mist continued to thicken with twilight. I thought that I was riding toward the west, but before me, in the wan dusk, there was no faintest gleaming of flare or color to betoken the drowned sunset. A dank odor that was touched with salt like the smell of sea marshes came to meet me. The road turned at a sharp angle, and I seemed to be riding between downs and marshland. The night gathered with an almost unnatural quickness, as if in haste to overtake me, and I began to feel a sort of dim concern and alarm as if I had gone astray in regions that were more dubious than an English county. The fog and twilight seemed to withhold a silent landscape of chill, deathly, disquieting mystery. Then, to the left of my road and a little before me, I saw a light that somehow suggested a mournful and tear-dimmed eye. It shone among blurred, uncertain masses that were like trees from a ghostland wood. A nearer mass, as I approached it, was resolved into a small lodge building, such as would guard the entrance of some estate. It was dark and apparently unoccupied. Pausing and peering, I saw the outlines of a wrought-iron gate in a hedge of untrimmed yew. It all had a desolate and forbidding air, and I felt in my very marrow the brooding chillness that had come in from the unseen marsh in that dismal, ever-coiling fog. But the light was promise of human nearness on the lonely downs, and I might obtain shelter for the night, or at least find someone who could direct me to a town or inn. Somewhat to my surprise, the gate was unlocked. It swung inward with a rusty grating sound as if it had not been opened for a long time, and pushing my motorcycle before me, I followed a weed-grown drive toward the light. The rambling mass of a large manor house disclosed itself among trees and shrubs whose artificial forms, like the hedge of ragged yew, were assuming a wilder grotesquerie than they had received from the hand of the topiary. The fog had turned into a bleak drizzle. Almost groping into the gloom, I found a dark door at some distance from the window that gave forth a solitary light. In response to my thrice-repeated knock, I heard at length the muffled sound of slow, dragging footfalls. The door was opened with a gradualness that seemed to indicate caution or reluctance, and I saw before me an old man bearing a lighted taper in his hand. His fingers trembled with palsy or decrepitude, and monstrous shadows flickered behind him in a dim hallway and touched his wrinkled features as with the flitting of ominous bat-like wings. "'What do you wish, sir?' he asked. The voice, though quavery and hesitant, was far from churlish and did not suggest the attitude of suspicion and downright inhospitality which I had begun to apprehend. However, I sensed a sort of irresolution or dubiety, and as the old man listened to my account of the circumstances that had led me to knock at that lonely door, I saw that he was scrutinizing me with a keenness that belied my first impression of extreme senility. "'I knew you were a stranger in these parts,' he commented when I had finished, "'but might I inquire your name, sir?' "'I am Henry Caldane.' "'Are you not the son of Mr. Arthur Caldane?' 
Somewhat mystified, I admitted the ascribed paternity. "'You resemble your father, sir. Mr. Caldane and Sir John Tremoth were great friends in the days before your father went to Canada. Will you not come in, sir? This is Tremoth Hall. Sir John has not been in the habit of receiving guests for a long time, but I shall tell him that you are here, and it may be that he will wish to see you.' Startled and not altogether agreeably surprised at the discovery of my whereabouts, I followed the old man to a book-lined study, whose furnishings bore evidence of luxury and neglect. Here he lit an old lamp of antique fashion with a dusty painted shade, and left me alone with the dustier volumes and furniture. I felt a queer embarrassment, a sense of actual intrusion as I waited in the wan yellow lamplight. There came back to me the details of the strange, horrific, half-forgotten story I had overheard from my father in childhood years. Lady Agatha Tremoth, Sir John's wife in the first year of their marriage, had become the victim of cataleptic seizures. The third seizure had apparently terminated in death, for she did not revive after the usual interval, and displayed all the familiar marks of the rigor mortis. Lady Agatha's body was placed in the family vaults, which were of almost fabulous age and extent, and had been excavated in the hill behind the manor house. On the day following the interment, Sir John, troubled by a queer, insistent doubt as to the finality of the medical verdict, had re-entered the vaults in time to hear a wild cry, and had found Lady Agatha sitting up in her coffin. The nailed lid was lying on the stone floor, and it seemed impossible that it could have been removed by the struggles of the frail woman. However, there was no other plausible explanation, though Lady Agatha herself could throw little light on the circumstances of her strange resurrection. Half-dazed and almost delirious, in a state of dire terror that was easily understandable, she told an incoherent tale of her experience. She did not seem to remember struggling to free herself from the coffin, but was troubled mainly by recollections of a pale, hideous, unhuman face, which she had seen in the gloom on awakening from her prolonged and death-like sleep. It was the sight of this face, stooping over her as she lay in the open coffin, that had caused her to cry out so wildly. The thing had vanished before Sir John's approach, fleeing swiftly to the inner vaults, and she had formed only a vague idea of its bodily appearance. She thought, however, that it was large and white, and ran like an animal on all fours, though its limbs were semi-human. Of course, her tale was regarded as a sort of dream, or a figment of delirium induced by the awful shock of her experience, which had blotted out all recollection of its true terror. But the memory of the horrible face and figure had seemed to obsess her permanently, and was plainly fraught with associations of mind-unhinging fear. She did not recover from her illness, but lived on in a shattered condition of brain and body, and nine months later she died, after giving birth to her first child. Her death was a merciful thing, for the child, it seemed, was one of those appalling monsters that sometimes appear in human families. The exact nature of its abnormality was not known, though frightful and divergent rumors had purported to emanate from the doctors, nurses, and servants who had seen it. Some of the latter had left Tremoth Hall and had refused to return after a single glimpse of the monstrosity. After Lady Agatha's death, Sir John had withdrawn from society and little or nothing was divulged in regard to his doings or the fate of the horrible infant. People said, however, that the child was kept in a locked room with iron-barred windows, which no one but Sir John himself ever entered. The tragedy had blighted his whole life, and he had become a recluse, living alone with one or two faithful servants, and allowing his estate to decline grievously through neglect. Doubtless, I thought, the old man who had admitted me was one of the remaining servitors. I was still reviewing the dreadful legend, still striving to recollect certain particulars that had almost passed from memory, 
When I heard the sound of footsteps, which, from their slowness and feebleness, I took to be those of the returning manservant. However, I was mistaken, for the person who entered was plainly Sir John Tremuth himself. The tall, slightly bent figure, the face that was lined as if by the trickling of some corrosive acid, were marked with a dignity that seemed to triumph over the double ravages of mortal sorrow and illness. Somehow, though I could have calculated his real age, I had expected an old man, but he was scarcely beyond middle life. His cadaverous pallor and feeble tottering walk were those of a man who is stricken with some fatal malady. His manner, as he addressed me, was impeccably courteous and even gracious, but the voice was that of one to whom the ordinary relations and actions of life had long since become meaningless and perfunctory. "'Hoppa tells me that you are the son of my old school friend, Arthur Caldane,' he said. "'I bid you welcome to such poor hospitality as I am able to offer. "'I have not received guests for many years, and I fear you will find the hall pretty dull and dismal "'and will think me an indifferent host. "'Nevertheless, you must remain, at least for the night. "'Harper has gone to prepare dinner for us.' "'You are very kind,' I replied. "'I fear, however, that I am intruding. "'If not at all,' he countered firmly, "'you must be my guest.' It is miles to the nearest inn, and the fog is changing into a heavy rain. Indeed, I am glad to have you. You must tell me all about your father and yourself at dinner. In the meanwhile, I'll try to find a room for you if you'll come with me. He led me to the second floor of the manor house and down a long hall with beams and panels of ancient oak. We passed several doors which were doubtless those of bedchambers. All were closed, and one of the doors was reinforced with iron bars, heavy and sinister as those of a dungeon cell. Inevitably, I surmised that this was the chamber in which the monstrous child had been confined, and also I wondered if the abnormality still lived, after a lapse of time that must have been nearly thirty years. How abysmal, how abhorrent must have been its departure from the human type to necessitate an immediate removal from the sight of others, and what characteristics of its further development could have rendered necessary the massive bars on an oaken door which by itself was strong enough to have resisted the assault of any common man or beast. Without even glancing at the door, my host went on, carrying a taper that scarcely shook in his feeble fingers. My curious reflections as I followed him were interrupted with nerve-shattering suddenness by a loud cry that seemed to issue from the barred room. The sound was a long, ever-mounting ululation, infrabass at first like the too-muffled voice of a demon, and rising through abominable degrees to a shrill, ravenous fury, as if the demon had emerged by a series of underground steps to the open air. It was neither human nor bestial. It was wholly preternatural, hellish, macabre, and I shuddered with an insupportable eeriness that still persisted when the demon voice, after reaching its culmination, had returned by reverse degrees to a profound sepulchral silence. Sir John had given no apparent heed to the awful sound, but had gone on with no more than his usual faltering. He had reached the end of the hall and was pausing before the second chamber from the one with the sealed door. "'I'll let you have this room,' he said. "'It's just beyond the one that I occupy.' He did not turn his face toward me as he spoke, and his voice was unnaturally toneless and restrained. I realized with another shudder that the chamber he had indicated as his own was adjacent to the room from which the frightful ululation had appeared to issue. The chamber to which he now admitted me had manifestly not been used for years. The air was chill, stagnant, unwholesome, with an all-pervading mustiness, and the antique furniture had gathered the inevitable increment of dust and cobwebs. Sir John began to apologize. "'I didn't realize the condition of the room,' he said. "'I'll send Harper after dinner to do a little dusting and clearing and put fresh linen on the bed.' 
I protested rather vaguely that there was no need for him to apologize. The unhuman loneliness and decay of the old manor house, its lustrums and decades of neglect, and the corresponding desolation of its owner had impressed me more painfully than ever, and I dared not speculate over much concerning the ghastly secret of the barred chamber and the hellish howling that still echoed in my shaken nerves. Already I regretted the singular fortuity that had drawn me to that place of evil and festering shadows. I felt an urgent desire to leave, to continue my journey even in the face of the bleak autumnal rain and wind-blown darkness, but I could think of no excuse that would be sufficiently tangible and valid. Manifestly, there was nothing to do but remain. Our dinner was served in a dismal but stately room by the old man whom Sir John had referred to as Harper. The meal was plain but substantial and well-cooked, and the service was impeccable. I had begun to infer that Harper was the only servant, a combination of valet, butler, housekeeper, and chef. In spite of my hunger and the pains taken by my host to make me feel at ease, the meal was a solemn and almost funereal ceremony. I could not forget my father's story, and still less could I forget the sealed door and the baleful ululation. Whatever it was, the monstrosity still lived, and I felt a complex mingling of admiration, pity, and horror as I looked at the gaunt and gallant face of Sir John Tremoth, and reflected upon the lifelong hell to which he had been condemned, and the apparent fortitude with which he had borne its unthinkable ordeals. A bottle of excellent sherry was brought in. Over this we sat for an hour or more. Sir John spoke at some length concerning my father, of whose death he had not previously heard, and he drew me out in regard to my own affairs with the subtle adroitness of a polished man of the world. He said little about himself, and not even by hint or implication did he refer to the tragic history which I have outlined. Since I am rather abstemious, and did not empty my glass with much frequency, the major part of the heavy wine was consumed by my host. Toward the end it seemed to bring out in him a curious vein of confidentiality, and he spoke for the first time of the ill health that was all too patent in his appearance. I learned that he was subject to that most painful form of heart disease, angina pectoris, and had recently recovered from an attack of unusual severity. "'The next one will finish me,' he said, "'and it may come at any time. Perhaps tonight.' He made the announcement very simply, as if he were voicing a commonplace or venturing a prediction about the weather. Then, after a slight pause, he went on with more emphasis and weightiness of tone. Maybe you'll think me queer, but I have a fixed prejudice against burial or vault interment. I want my remains to be thoroughly cremated, and have left careful directions to that end. Harper will see to it that they are fulfilled. Fire is the cleanest and purest of the elements, and it cuts short all the damnable processes between death and ultimate disintegration. I can't bear the idea of some moldy, worm-infested tomb. He continued to discourse on the subject for some time, with a singular elaboration and tenseness of manner that showed it to be a familiar theme of thought, if not an actual obsession. It seemed to possess a morbid fascination for him, and there was a painful light in his hollow, haunted eyes, and a touch of rigidly subdued hysteria in his voice as he spoke. I remembered the interment of Lady Agatha, and her tragic resurrection, and the dim, delirious horror of the vaults that had formed an inexplicable and vaguely disturbing part of her story. It was not hard to understand Sir John's aversion to burial, but I was far from suspecting the full terror and ghastliness on which his repugnance had been founded. Harper had disappeared after bringing the sherry, and I surmised that he had been given orders for the renovation of my room. We had now drained our last glasses, and my host had ended his peroration. The wind, which had animated him briefly, seemed to die out, and he looked more ill and haggard than ever. 
Pleading my own fatigue, I expressed a wish to retire, and he, with his invariable courtliness, insisted on seeing me to my chamber and making sure of my comfort before seeking his own bed. In the hall above, we met Harper, who was just descending from a flight of stairs that must have led to an attic or third floor. He was carrying a heavy iron pan, in which a few scraps of meat remained, and I caught an odor of pronounced gaminess, almost virtual putrescence, from the pan as he went by. I wondered if he had been feeding the unknown monstrosity, and if perhaps its food were supplied to it through a trap in the ceiling of the barred room. The surmise was reasonable enough, but the odor of the scraps, by a train of remote, half-literary association, had begun to suggest other surmises, which, it would seem, were beyond the realm of possibility and reason. Certain evasive, incoherent hints appeared to point themselves suddenly to an atrocious and abhorrent whole. With imperfect success, I assured myself that the thing I had fancied was incredible to science was a mere creation of superstitious diablery. No, it could not be. Here in England, of all places, that corpse-devouring demon of oriental tales and legends. The ghoul. Contrary to my fears, there was no reputation of the fiendish howling as we passed the secret room, but I thought that I heard a measured crunching such as a large animal would make in devouring its food. My room, though still drear and dismal enough, had been cleared of its accumulated dust and matted gossamers. After a personal inspection, Sir John left me and retired to his own chamber. I was struck by his deathly pallor and weakness as he said goodnight to me, and felt guiltily apprehensive that the strain of receiving and entertaining a guest might have aggravated the dire disease from which he suffered. I seemed to detect actual pain and torment beneath his careful armor of urbanity, and wondered if the urbanity had not been maintained at an excessive cost. The fatigue of my day-long journey, together with the heavy wine I had drunk, should have conduced to early slumber, but though I lay with tightly closed lids in the darkness, I could not dismiss those evil shadows, those black and charnel larvae that swarmed upon me from the ancient house. Insufferable and forbidden things besieged me with filthy talons, brushed me with noisome coils as I tossed through eternal hours and lay staring at the gray square of the storm-darkened window. The dripping of the rain, the sigh and moan of the wind resolved themselves to a dread mutter of half-articulate voices that plotted against my peace and whispered loathfully of nameless secrets in demonian language. At length, after the seeming lapse of nocturnal centuries, the tempest died away, and I no longer heard the equivocal voices. The window lightened a little in the black wall, and the terrors of my night-long insomnia seemed to withdraw partially, but without bringing the surcease of slumber. I became aware of utter silence, and then, in the silence, of a queer, faint, disquieting sound whose cause and location baffled me for many minutes. The sound was muffled and far off at times, then it seemed to draw near as if it were in the next room. I began to identify it as a sort of scratching, such as would be made by the claws of an animal on solid woodwork. Sitting up in bed and listening attentively, I realized with a fresh start of horror that it came from the direction of the barred chamber. It took on a strange resonance, then it became almost inaudible, and suddenly for a while it ceased. In the interim I heard a groan like that of a man in great agony or terror. I could not mistake the source of the groan which had issued from Sir John Tremoth's room, nor was I doubtful any longer as to the causation of the scratching. The groan was not repeated, but the damnable clawing sound began again and was continued till daybreak. Then, as if the creature that had caused the noise were wholly nocturnal in its habits, the faint, vibrant rasping ceased and was not resumed. 
in a state of dull, nightmarish apprehension, drugged with weariness and want of sleep, I had listened to it with intolerably straining ears. With its cessation in the hueless, livid dawn, I slid into a deep slumber from which the muffled and amorphous specters of the old hall were unable to detain me any longer. All right, well, that is part one of The Nameless Offspring by Clark Ashton Smith. I hope you enjoyed that. Stay tuned next week for part two of the story. Uh, as always, if you like the podcast, if you like what you hear, or if you have some sort of comment or criticism that you wish to make, you can email me at theweirdtalespodcast at gmail.com. You can uh, contact me on Twitter. I am at weirdtalespod. Or you can just leave me a rating and a review on iTunes or Spotify or, you know, wherever you leave your reviews. I would love to see them. I love... Um, Seeing what people have, have, I love what people have to say and think about the show. Uh, and if and uh, as always, any uh, constructive criticism is taken to heart and used to make the show better. Uh, and I appreciate anything that anybody wishes to say. So, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it, and I will see you next week. Da 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 da. Here's the bloops. The country was one of health in boulders, Heath, not health, Heath. <sighs> However, there was no other plausible explanation, though. However, there was no other plausible explanation. I'm sick and I don't want to read. She did not recover from her illness, but lived on in shattered. I was distracted by lights on the wall. <sighs> Some of the latter had left Tremoth Hall and refused to... Re Return. That word is returned. The book that I'm reading out of has spelling errors in it. So that the word animal that I used a few minutes ago is actually spelled A-O-I-M-A-L instead of A-N-I. And uh, this word was retour, R-E-T-U-R-E. And I wasn't sure whether that was a real word or whether it was return. And it turned out that it's return. And I'm just going to have to keep an eye out for that. And I'm sick! After Lady Agus's... Oh, this is going to be a long one. This is going to be so long. After Lady Agatha... God. Agatha. Agatha. After Lady Agatha's death. After Lady Agatha's death... In spite of my hunger... Okay, this is... All right. I took some drugs for my nose, so hopefully the problem has resolved itself. My cat tried to get into the room as I was coming back in to record, and I had to tell him. I was like, stop, you can't go in here. I can't have you in here. You're the best cat, and I love you. You're the best cat ever, but you can't be in the room with me because you meow too much. That was a lie. He's not the best cat ever. I had to lie to my cat. He's kind of an asshole. Okay, let's get on with the story. I learned that he was subject to the most painful form of heart disease, angina pectoris. See, there's a colon there, but I don't think there's a colon that goes there. And it threw off the whole sentence and my reading of it. So now I have to read that sentence again. Thanks, Clark. I'm kind of a grammar snob, in case you didn't pick that up from the House on the Borderland blooper reel. I learned that he was subject to the most... Pa uh, 
a few more pages and then you're done. Just a few more pages and then you're done. And I caught an odor of pronounced gaminess, almost virtual pre, almost virtual pre, putrescence. He was carrying a heavy iron pan in which a few scraps of meat remained. <coughs> <coughs> oh my God! If I get through this sentence, it'll be a miracle.